0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: I guess we're still socially distanced. I, that's, that's good. good. I, need a, I need a tape measure. I need to know this is six feet. Hello, everyone. Um, my, I would like to welcome you all. I'm excited to be back in person at the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco. My name is Clara Jeffrey. I'm the editor in chief of Mother Jones, and I'm thrilled to be here tonight, moderating today's program. Uh, And with us, we have author and political strategist Dan Pfeiffer to discuss his timely new book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook and the MAGA Media are Destroying America. Dan, as I'm sure you guys know, is the co-host of the popular podcast Pod Save America. And he was also, you know, minor footnote to his career, (laughs) uh, President Obama's communication director and senior advisor. Um, For those of you who maybe have not gotten a chance to read a little excerpt of Battling the Big Lie, Dan unpacks how lies like QAnon and the stolen election became supported by millions of Americans and far too many members of Congress. He lays down guides to spot fake news, to fact-check dubious stories, and to address the conspiracy theory believers in one's own life. Yeah, I got one of those. Um, (laughs) Helping readers navigate what he says the is a political movement waging a war on truth and he is not wrong as we have seen uh yet again with the january 6th commission hearings all of this has a has dangerous real world impacts you guys have just been reminded of this but it's in my script so i'm going to remind you again that if you're here with us in san francisco please write any questions you have on question cards those will be picked up and brought to me and if you're watching with us online you can put your questions in the text chat on youtube We'll be getting to those questions later in the program. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. Well,
0: thank you for being here with me in person with actual people. It's I know. It's
1: exciting. It's exciting. I, you know, as I hear your voice in my podcast feed all the time, <laughs> but it's nice to see you again. Um, okay. How successful are the January 6th committee hearings in battling the big lie information? I don't
0: think we know the answer to that, that yet. I th- so there are two tests of the success of any art of persuasion political marketing etc but particularly in political messaging the first is what you say and whether you convince people we're going to still see if people are convinced by what is said the second is can you get people to pay attention now in that first hearing they got 20 million people to tune in that does not seem like a lot when compared to the 160 million Americans who voted in the election. But to put give it some perspective, 20 million people is more people than have tuned into a single NBA finals game this week, the NCAA Final Four, the Oscars. Um, so that's a lot of people. Now, I think we can probably assume that the overall majority of people who tuned in have already made up their mind about Trump's culpability. And I would say the vast majority of them, especially since Fox did not air that first hearing, Uh Believe that Donald Trump lied about the election and that lie led to this violence. But I think there's even, a, I think, a more encouraging indicator of success in sort of dominating the conversation. And that is every day I look at the list of top performing Facebook posts. And that list is a hellscape on a normal day. <laughs> it is like Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, Candace Owens, more Ben Shapiro. Every once in a while, NPR gets in there. That's a big victory. Every once in a while, there's some sort of like, cute animal page, like baby penguins or puppies. That's nice. I always like to make sure that that's, they're not like, snuggling in white supremacist content through the penguins. <laughs> um, but on the day, in the days after the, uh, after the he- that first hearing, Progress, pages uh, owned by progressives dominated those numbers, including had the top six, which I think is a very positive sign. And I, but I do think you have to—the question is, how are we going to measure success? Is it—are we—is the goal—if the goal of this hearing is to deprogram the vast majority of Republicans who believe the big lie, they are going to fail. That is not—I don't think that is an achievable outcome. Can, the, can this hearing raise awareness among people who are open to the idea— that they should be really concerned about a president who spread a conspiracy theory that led to violence and tried to overturn an election and seems to be doing it again, then that's the test. We'll see if at the end of this process more people are aware of that and concerned about it.
1: Do you think that the chief goal is to to do that act of persuasion to sort of battle the disinformation of the big lie? Or from what you've seen so far, is it more of a case to look, to lay out a case to prosecute Trump or prosecute others close to him?
0: I think it's a combination of the two. They are clearly engaging – like they could just write Merrick Garland a letter if they wanted to do that, right? That, that, this would be a very inefficient way to convince – a small handful of people in one building less than a mile away <laughs> that they should prosecute Trump. Um, so they the effect. If you, you don't hold things in prime time unless you want a lot of people to see it. You don't hire a television ABC news veteran television producer to help you put it together. They very clearly have thought, and I think very impressive ways about how you tell this story with video clips and that never before seen footage of January 6th from the documentarian who was following the proud boys, that, Footage that is basically f- almost like from the white supremacist version of all the president's men of the oath keepers and the Proud Boys meeting in a secret parking garage in Virginia as if it was Deep Throat in Bob Woodward. Um, and they, so they, I think they are having success in um, communicating that story to people. And I don't, and this is sort of one of the things I try to get to in the book is you kind of is that there is they are not the big lie is the specific allegation that Donald that the, Joe Biden somehow stole the election. The means by which Joe Biden, who Joe, Donald Trump has also said, is uh, mentally incompetent. Somehow how not sure he's doing both of those things at the same time. <laughs> but uh, he but the meat like the details don't matter. Right. It's like it's these light switches that the Chinese hacked and there's Dominion and there's something involving Hugo Chavez from the grave and all of that. And it's all this noise they're throwing out there. And what I think the committee's trying to do is cut through that noise because you kind of I think the average Democrat. I think the, most people say Joe Biden won. Some people say, yeah, he probably won, but it sounds like a lot of sketchy stuff happens and maybe we need voter suppression laws and this is trying to like cut through that noise. And, you know, I will see how effective they are, but the early returns are pretty good, I think.
1: Do you think that this is... The substance successes and the stylistic successes are the same? I mean, you mentioned that it feels... Like I was commenting Mm -hmm. that it feels like a... W- uh, well-plotted-out, limited-series yes. HBO show. In- insurrect- including this the This season teasers. on Insurrection. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, I think
0: that the... I think the question that I have in my mind as we look at... When we look at the success of this at the end of all six episodes of this HBO Max limited series about the fall of democracy, is um, how... I think that January 6th is the, that day is the most dramatic, right? It is the shock that a lot of people went through it. You know, there was violence, people died. We have this footage of it. And when you watch the footage is so emotional to watch, like I was like, I talk about January 6th for a living, like three times a week. And I write about all the time and I watched that video and I was enraged at the, at Donald Trump and all the rest of the Republicans who were whitewashing. I was enraged at myself for not being continue, constantly enraged over the last 18 months because it was so dangerous. Um, but the, f- the fear that I have is that we will focus on that day because we can prevent an assault on the Capitol. Like, I promise you the National Guard will be out front next time. There will be walls and barriers. Like, we know how to protect a building and we know how to get help to that building if you need it. What I really worry about is the ongoing criminal conspiracy to steal the next election. Right. The violence just happened because the the actual plan did not succeed. What I worry about here is the plan succeeding. And that is, I think, a very real threat that as we go forward, we that has to be part of the conversation about this.
1: Yeah, it feels feels like in some ways a a rough draft of what they're trying to uh, accomplish. Um, you know, your book in part is a tale of s- watching a sort of top level communications expert seeing disinformation metastasize yeah. over their career. Um, and I was struck by something that you wrote about at the beginning, um, that happened when you were on Tom Daschle's election mm-hmm. campaign that you came later to see as a mm-hmm. sort of prelude. Can you just yep. break that down a little bit?
0: Sure. So I was working at the time for Tom Daschle, who was the Senate Minority leader at the time, he was running for re-election in very, very red South Dakota. He had won all of his previous elections pretty easily, but this was obviously going to be a very tough year. This was 2004. Bush was on the ballot. Daschle had become the face of the Democratic Party. South Dakota had gotten more. It had always been Republican, but it had been a little. It had two Democratic senators. Had uh, was considered a battleground state in 1996 for Bill Clinton. Um, so it had. There was some strains of. Prairie populism sort of that had benefited Democrats and he was running against John Thune, who was uh, spoiler alert. He won the election. He's currently the senator for South Dakota. Um, and I hate that there's so much context to this, but I had worked the previous two years, two years earlier on a Tim Johnson, who was the other democratic Senator also against John Thune. We had won that race. We're the only Democrat to win a tough election in that year. And the Republicans reran Thune Bush recruited him and they, they did two things in that election that I think were a prelude to what the Republicans are doing now. This sort of became part of Trump's media strategy. The first is the right was convinced that the press in South Dakota was overly friendly to Daschle. He had been around for 30 years. They were, I think, this view that they were very excited that uh, as a person who was, who is was from the small state of Delaware— who now has a president from their state. You get very, if you're from a small state and someone makes it big, you get very excited about it. So there was a sense that the local press was overly thrilled by the fact that their native son had become the uh, Senate, the most powerful Democrat in the country at the time. And so what they did was, is they, they, there were these blogs that emerged earlier in that campaign. This was sort of the blog period of democratic politics uh, and, or political, political media, I guess. And these blogs were had innocuous names, one was called Dashell V Thune, it was supposed to be covering the race. One was called South Dakota Politics. And they started hammering the local press as biased towards Dashell. Hammered them. They taught, they drew like old connections between Dashell and his Dashiell's ex-wife and the uh, the number one political columnist in the state and that they were friends and that meant they couldn't cover the race. And this freaked the press out, who had never really experienced You know, prior to the age of the Internet, the media was pretty insulated from criticism. Now, all of a sudden, you have these blogs that are just hammering them as biased. They're, like, having meetings about what do they do, and they become so... um, the, the state's largest paper, which was really the target of this, became so afraid of it that they refu- they wouldn't assign anyone who had basically covered politics before to cover the race because anyone who covered politics had covered Dasho before. So, in the most important Senate race that would ever happen in the history of that state, they assigned someone who had never covered politics to cover the race, um, and that was very problematic for us on the campaign because this person had no context for some of the things that were happening. And so, very successfully, bludgeoned the press. The other thing that happened later in that campaign is they started publishing conspiracy theories like pure straight disinformation. And the most notable one was in South Dakota a state where it has a very large Native American population and that population has traditionally voted overwhelmingly for Democrats. And when they turn out, Democrats have a chance to win. And when they don't, uh, Democrats do not. And they uh, and a and lar- This is very important. A lar- A long history of racism towards the Native American communities in those sta- in the state, and they started like emerging on the blogs was this story. Like there were like you know siren report. Like new. We we have re- big scoop. 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 That Dashell had made a secret deal with Native American leaders, that if he was reelected, he got sufficient turnout to get reelected, he would return the Black Hills of South Dakota to the Sioux Nation, which it's theirs. I mean, that should have happened. It is their (laughs) land. Um, But also not something one senator can do. Like, that's not really a feasible thing. Um, And nor had he made such a promise. And using the old sort of communications playbook of that day, you ignore that. You don't want to you don't want you don't want to accidentally put the Streisand effect into effect where you talk about something where now all of a sudden people know about it. So you give it no oxygen. And I was pretty confident uh, that who I'm like, who is reading these blogs? Like, no, only like political losers like myself are reading these blogs. And so we sat down for a focus group in, in the Black Hills of South Dakota and where we, you get together a bunch of un, a bunch of undecided voters and you have a conversation with them to try to to better understand how they're. They're thinking about politics and the race. And the people that we had brought together for the, in this evening were people who had supported Tom Daschle previously but were now undecided. We're trying to find out why that is, like what messages had moved them, what had he done they didn't like. And so they sort of go around and they take the temperature. And the, ver- the very first comment is from a woman in a just pure South Dakota accent who says something to the effect of um, – Like, I've known Tom a very long time. I don't understand why he wants to give the Black Hills away. I live in the Black Hills. And I was like, I thought to myself, I'm sitting there, I'm like, what are the odds? There's like 300 people who read these things. You know, what are the odds that one of them ends up in this room right here? And then another person says, oh, I heard that too. The Tom I know would never do such a thing. And I realized in that moment that it had taken hold among a, a population. And what had worked is it was in concert with... National media, right wing media nationally, like Hugh Hewitt, uh, who had a national radio show, has a national radio show, I guess, still very an ally of Trump, I guess, uh, covered it on his show. And it sort of got out there in the Fox world. And the, and they basically did the two things that I think are core to Republican media strategies. I wrap up this very long story of 18 years ago um, is one. Exploiting the press's own, the mainstream political press's own concerns about their liberal bias, forcing them, sort of bullying them and bludging them into doing what you want by accusing them of being biased for liberal. The second thing is using disinformation to sow distrust amongst Democrats. And both those things became, you know, in the moment they were devastating. But like 18 years later, looking at what the Republican Party has done in the context of the big lie, there was a real canary in the coal mine element to that.
1: You know, hindsight is twenty, 20. I, I'm wondering, with the reflection of a few years, what you look back to the, you know, tenure at the, with the Obama administration and think, oh, that was another signal that we missed or didn't react to the right way. Or, like, could we have nipped something in the bud?
0: You know, I think about that and I write about in the book, you know, is the birtherism. Right. Which is uh, something we dealt with from the, the moment Donald Trump started. Sorry, Donald Trump. The, mo- the moment Barack Obama started running for president was this rumor that he was not born in the United States. A patently absurd rumor on a whole host of fronts. But one very important point that often gets lost in this coverage is that there was a birth notice in the Honolulu paper the day after he was born. So this is a very complex uh This would have been a very complex conspiracy that would require time travel (laughs) to go back in time and get that uh, that birth notice in there. But, you know, we I think in hindsight, we were we were aggressive during the campaign to respond to it. But once we won, we -hmm. sort of like this is behind us we not to worry about it. And it wasn't until Donald Trump picked up the mantle of birtherism that Barack Obama had to. Uh, himself respond to it and publicly release his long foreign birth certificate to the world, um, we definitely could have gotten there earlier. And I think one of the things that I think we probably, we did this in the campaign and we stopped doing it in the White House, is give our supporters the tools to push back on their behalf. The thing we did in the campaign was, because it was happening in the context of Democratic primaries, mostly people who wanted to believe Barack Obama was born in America, but had heard this rumor and that gave them a pretty big concern that you generally don't want to v- nominate someone constitutional eligible to serve as president of the United States. Like that seems like a flaw in the system. <laughs> and so we post, I mean, it's, just, it's like, so like 19 generations of the internet ago, um, we posted the short form birth certificate on the web and then told people to, um, email it to people like this. We were so, we thought we were so innovative. <laughs> like you could click a link and it would pop up in an email because all these things are passing through email forwards. Um, and so we were like, we were like arming them with like, here's a piece of proof you can go to a well-meaning person who wants to know the truth. Um, the thing that I struggle with, and I think is a, we all struggle with is what do you do about people who are not willing to open their ears? Like that's the, that's the hard decision. It's an easier decision politically because you're probably not going to get those. If you're a Democrat, you're not. People who, still to this day, believe Barack Obama was born in Kenya, are not probably gettable. But from a societal point of view, mm. that is a that's a problem.
1: Do you th- Did you guys struggle with if we push back too hard, kind of call this as naked racism? That might like further aggravate the sort of racist impulses. Or, you know, it. I mean, it was obvious
0: racism, right? It was very clearly obvious racism. I think when we... The decision to push back the way we did was wholly Barack Obama's um, to do it. It was actually against the advice of many people, myself included, um, to actually put out that birth certificate. And it's very tricky for the first black president to call out racism... Before Trump. Right. There was this like that was the thing you could never do if you like any like obvious racism could certainly not be called racism. Like there was a Republican member of Congress who called Barack Obama boy in a meeting in a, during congressional negotiations. But if we ever came out and said that was racist, that would be this gigantic firestorm. There is a uh, particularly in that period of time, a you were unleashing something. That would be very hard to consume, like the Obama talks about it in his own book that the time in which he had the greatest dip in polling he ever had was after he early on criticized the Massachusetts p- police for how they had handled uh how they had arrested Henry Louis Gates right. and it had caused a gigantic firestorm, very complicated story, but like that it's like. It's one a for the black president for the black president to call a very famous celebrity a racist, even though he's obviously a racist, would dominate coverage for. Ten days, and I I think the vast majority of the press would have sided with the racist in that situation.
1: I'm just digesting that a little bit. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> Can you imagine what the Morning Joe roundtable would have been like in t- circa 2011 if Barack yeah, Obama I and mean, Donald Trump I racist?
1: It is such a, like, you want you want the Star Trek Next Generation two forking timelines. Yes, right. Sort of There's a sliding doors moment. Either here. one uh, turns yeah. out. Um, you know, was it sort of also partly the, like, you know, we go high when they go low impulse? Or I
0: think that it's like that. I'm very glad Barack Obama wrote his book because I to talk about some of the complications of dealing with race in America as the first black president. It's just very like during the campaign, it was an incredibly untested proposition. You had no idea how people were going to react. The and so he had to navigate that. We took cues from him on how to do those things, obviously. Um, And he really picked the moments where he would. Step out that way, and usually he would make it very clear that he had made up his mind. Like in the case of the birth certificate, uh he told me he was releasing a birth certificate, and he had actually told a couple other people who then told me, and I took a beeline to the office to uh, try to make the case that I thought this would be a, a giant distraction a time when we couldn't afford a distraction. And he had been—he was sitting at his desk. uh He had written a children's book, and so he had a period of time where he was signing books for people like it would be like 45 minutes on a schedule where he would just sit and sign uh books for i think like staff and family and friends and all of this and supporters and it, i arrived at his office uh normally i would just go down there to ask his uh, executive assistant if i could get five minutes with him but the door was open and he saw me like headed in and he was like pfeiffer i know what you want and i've made up my mind
1: <laughs> and i was like <laughs> i was like Okay, sir. <laughs> what time would you like to do this? <laughs> so was like... Right. Um, you know, we'll come back to your uh, argument about how um, any failings of democratic messaging pale in, in <laughs> comparison to the sort of media landscape yeah. structural issues. That said, yes, um, there are these weird missteps like the Pelosi Kenty cloth prayer circle situation yeah. or deciding <laughs> that abortion shouldn't be called a choice but a decision. I still yeah. don't really understand the parsing there. Um, how much of that kind of misstep is like too many? consultants talking to too many different parts of the party and is there any hope for like more kind of centralized nodes of messaging
0: i will answer the second part of your question first no okay. there is not more hope for that um, and i'm sorry to i'm sorry to tell you all that but that is that is just the reality um, i think there are three my Argument in the book that the bigger problem is structural, not messaging, has been read by some as an endorsement of everything Democrats have ever said. And I certainly did not intend it that way. Um, but I think that there are a couple of different problems that lead to some of the things you mentioned. One is we just ha- are a, particularly when it comes to congressional messaging, we are a, a big tent party that has the ideological diversity uh, from AOC to Joe Manchin. And when you do, and I used to work in center leadership before I uh, ignored disinformation and helped return Tom Daschle to the private sector. <laughs> um, the, uh, and so I've been through a lot of these processes where you're like, "What is our message?" And that's really hard when the you don't have the White House, so it's like these the Congress must decide, and it's and it's not a democracy in the sense that the majority wins. It is everyone signs off. And so you're trying to do message. You need in the Senate right now. If they're like, "What is our Senate slogan?" You need Joe Manchin, Kyrsten Cinema, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. All be like, "We're good with that." And by definition, you're going to end up with verbal applesauce. Like that is what that will be. The second problem, and I think this gets to the decision choice, is Democrats are obsessed with words. We are like we think and I and that is it was described to me once by a political columnist many, many years ago is that we have a we're like slot machine addicts Mm -hmm. where we we are always looking for a shortcut to getting rich. And if we just pull the lever enough times or we come up with the right word or the right phrasing, that will be a substitute for all of the hard work of building bottom up progressive power where it's like we can just you know, we and we have these obsessions Like we were obsessed. The party was obsessed in the mid 2000s with George Lakoff, obsessed, obsessed. I think George Lakoff is a very smart guy and has a lot of offers. But it's you can't like a linguist cannot be the answer to the (laughs) problem. Right. And so uh, and so I think that gets a situation where it's like, well, we're we're losing this issue. And it's the, the abortion one actually gets to the structural problem, which is we're winning the popular argument on abortion. Eight to two in most cases. Where we're losing is they took over the courts and put in place a bunch of judges appointed by presidents who got fewer votes, approved by Senate, minor- Senate majorities that represented a minority Americans to pass these laws. It wasn't that we didn't have the right language on abortion, and so that's sometimes what we get in the And the third thing is, I think there are current leadership in the party. Are very good at lots of parts of their jobs, but it is certainly unfair to ask them to be incredibly death communicators in the most complicated communication environment in history. I've always had the theory that politicians are their communication sensibilities are frozen in amber on the day they enter national politics. And so it's like, that's just how you think. That's the last time you're a normal human is. Before you enter national politics.
1: So Steny Hoyer, that was like. Yeah,
0: like, I mean, I mean, it is true. <laughs> like, are like, I love Nancy Pelosi. I think Chuck Schumer does a really good job. I've known Joe Biden my entire life and have the utmost respect for him as a person and a president. But all of them remember when television became a big deal. Like, that becomes <laughs> hard to communicate in the Facebook page. Like, I actually think Barack Obama, who I believe to be the most talented communicator of our time, if he were to run for president now, he would be behind the times communication-wise because the world changed dramatically in the middle, basically at the, towards the end after his presidency as Facebook became the most dominant communications platform on the planet, which was different than what it was like when he got elected and reelected, frankly.
1: Okay, so speaking of Facebook, yeah, Trump just called for the prosecution of Mark Zuckerberg. Which... Did he
0: do it on Truth Social?
1: Uh, he did it on his 12 page. Oh, page okay. Crazy, yeah. Okay. Um, which seems particularly ironic, given all that Facebook has done for Trump. Um, do you think that even high information voters really understand how malicious Facebook has been in this, in like creating the media landscape that we have now?
0: No, I do not believe they do, and I think even high information voters, some of the most media literate. Sophisticated news consumers on the planet are still being uh, victims of disinformation propaganda on Facebook because it, Facebook makes it almost, and this is a feature, not a bug in their mind, impossible to distinguish fact from fiction, information from disinformation, uh, truth from lies, because you're just seeing headlines and you don't know necessarily where that is from. Is it from a news source you should? Uh, believe because they have a long history of being objective and trying to do the best they can. Is it pure right-wing propaganda? Is it complete disinformation? Like I, like I read the news for a living, like that is my job. And it was just really sad. Um, And, but in 2016, I was sitting on a plane towards the end of that campaign and I saw a story. I don't even think it was on Facebook. It might've been on Twitter that had been shared by someone and I clicked on it. And I read it and the headline of the story was something like FBI agent in charge of Clinton investigation found dead in apartment. And I was like, Mike, my, my initial thought was yet more horrible luck for Hillary Clinton. Right. Like it was not that she had murdered the FBI agent, which was the implication of the story. It was like, of course. Right. This will be the fodder for conspiracy theories. And it took me 60 seconds to realize that it was a, uh, a fake Denver news outlet. It was not the Denver Post. It was like the Denver News Journal or something. Like, I know what the paper in Denver is because I've worked in national politics and I've been to the Denver Post. But the vast majority of Americans have no idea what the name of a local paper in Denver is. So if the Denver News Journal sound that sounds real. Like, I'll believe that. And so I think people don't know how dangerous Facebook is, both in how it exists, the decisions people make there, how it has gutted news, journalism, gutted democracy. And I don't even think if they are still on Facebook, they realize that they are victims of said activities as well.
1: I mean, I think the other thing that that folks don't get is that it's not just, oh, we've created this structure and like this crap, fake news, like burbles to the top and is spread. They've actually purposely gone in and manipulated their algorithm to do just this. and that I think is part you know it's the intentionality um that kind of people like us who swim in this stuff yeah. know more about, but um it's it's frightening that Americans I think just think well, if they're bad, it's just because they're kind of lame and yeah. don't really do anything on purpose
0: yeah i don't I think that they what is there's been a lot of great reporting on this. you guys have done a lot um about how. They ha- the folks at Facebook, under the sign-off of Mark Zuckerberg, have specifically not enforced or changed the rules in order to allow disinf- pro- you know, propaganda and disinformation to flourish on the platform. Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, um, as you have reported, uh, his empire of sites breaks all the rules at Facebook. But they turn a blind eye because they're afraid that if they were to enforce their rules on a, you know, a very well read popular right wing news site, that would be seen as big tech liberal bias. So they just ignore the rules The the. For a while, they had a trusted news program, which they this was one of their many failed efforts to fight back against, quote unquote, fake news. So we're going to we're going to promote trusted news partners and we're going to get like CNN and The New York Times like that. But if you get CNN, New York Times, in their view, you also have to have Breitbart and Fox. Mm -hmm. And they had a three strike uh, plant, you know, three strikes and you're out for pushing if you publish disinformation or factually incorrect. Well, they describe it. But they obviously I mean. I think Breitbart is on their like seven thousand strike at this point and not taken off of it because they do not want to upset trump and that sounds a lot of times i think that 's interpreted as cowardice, but it 's really avarice mm-hmm. because what they want, particularly when Trump was president, is they do not they were afraid that Trump would do something that would hurt their bottom line he would use the, the power of the government against them, the regulators, any of those things or and this is the thing I think is not enough attention to paid to is Facebook's audience is more Republican than any other news site by far. Any, sorry, any other uh, social media site by far. It's about 50, 50 Republicans and Democrats. Um, the rest are overwhelmingly Democrats. Um, and if Trump were to turn on Facebook, that is their customer base leaving. And if you, if people leave the platform, that they don't have any data to suck up to sell to advertisers or people to show ads to. And that would really hurt the bottom line.
1: Well, and also that the way that, you know, and they're not totally alone in this, like have set up a system whereby outrage enhances the bottom line. Yes. And so the more outrage you can sell the fake Denver newspaper or whatever. So that, that brings me to, Section two thirty yes and uh, i I give up. Should we repeal it um, with apologies to anyone here from the Electronic Frontier Foundation yes. or others? <laughs> um, it seems like every supposed ill from massively going in there seems more and more like a gain, like what if we got rid of all common sections, and what if we massively reformed social media not e- like not yeah. even that it would go that far what 's your take I, on that?
0: I am far from like i mean as far from an expert on these laws as you possibly can be. And I, so I sort of, there are a couple of things that, so it's like, what does the government do about Facebook? Right. And like, it obviously is, uh, there's obviously a need for antitrust scrutiny. Like it, Someone needs to at least look into the fact that three of the largest uh, social media platforms in the world are all, all owned by one person who is unaccountable to anyone because he can't be fired like that. Like, at least, like, look at it. Like, let's just spend a couple of days digging into whether, whether we should do something about that. Um, now, I recognize that and a lot of smart, well, many people point out, like, breaking those things up is very hard. It has some pretty unintended consequences um, that may not be great for businesses that depend on these platforms for commerce and things like that. So just nice to be like that. The Section 230 thing, Section 230 is the law that provides publishers with – internet publishers like Facebook with legal immunity about the things that people publish. So if you publish something crazy, Facebook is not liable for that. The one idea that has been interesting to me on this is one that Barack Obama proposed in his disinformation speech at Stanford a couple months ago is what if he repealed it for ads, mm. right? Where Because there's a difference between a random person posting something and – uh a entity particularly a political entity pay leveraging facebook's massive amounts of data to target said disinformation at people the algorithm believes is most likely to believe that disinformation like that may be something where you have some liability um, and then the other thing is some like we've been in this game of whack-a-mole progressives people who care about democracy of like mark zuckerberg Ban this person, take this content down, take Trump down, take the Facebook post down. And like that's a game where all we keep like we're losing, right? And so one thing is, and there have been some like Amy Klobuchar has an approach on this, is if I remember correctly, is uh some transparency about the algorithms. Like what like people should be able to look in the government regulars particularly should be able to look in the black box and figure out what is being promoted. And if you are promoting COVID whether intentionally or not intentionally, covid conspiracy theories or, th- or things like that or the big lie that there would be some consequences for that and so those are sort of the steps but this is a really hard 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 problem because we let these things get way too big before we fix them and this is where it gets challenging
1: what kind of disinformation do you think the left is particularly susceptible to like is it a different style of it or
0: <sighs> i mean there is this uh it is definitely a diff- the like the left and the right are very different in in their information environments. Uh, the left, you know, when they poll Democrats and Republicans on where you get your news, Democrats have a very have a media diet that is very heavy on traditional journalism: CNN, New York Times, local news. Uh, you know, oftentimes some progress some ideologically progressive content, uh, but generally it's a wide array of local news. The Republicans is almost always. You know the most mainstream outlet that they will ever mention is Wall Street Journal. The rest is like Fox, OAN, Rush Limbaugh when he was alive. That sort of stuff. Um, where you know there was this disturbing. So the left and the left has been just generally less susceptible to these things because of that. There are there are break, checks and balances in the system where if you're not living in this hermetically sealed information bubble. But there was this story about. Uh, the Jeopardy contestant who uh, was accused of doing a white power sign on Jeopardy and which he all now suggested that he just had his fingers in a certain way. uh, And that really wasn't what he was doing. And it like spread like wildfire among the Jeopardy community, the fans and the contestants. And it was a very powerful New York times story about this. And because they, you know, they, they were living in a world where white supremacy is, out in the open and is being advocated by our leaders. And so we're very sensitive to that. And so we see this accusation, this might've happened and people believed it and nothing. anyone said could get them to disbelieve it. And lots of people like these are jeopardy contestants. They are, you know, they're, they're as smart as they can possibly be all believe this and signed a letter basically calling on him to be, I don't know what the repercussions are for jeopardy consult jeopardy contestants, <laughs> but when that, which that actually is a, an important point that I think, when we think about victims of disinformation or people who fall for conspiracy theories, there is this tendency, particularly among people on our side, to think it is falling to the, the that, that, um, that is something that happens to the uneducated. Mm. And that's not actually the case. It is not the most likely predictive whether you're going to believe a conspiracy theory is not whether you went to college or not. It's whether you consume right wing media. And a non college educator, non high school educator, whatever else, people with less education who consume, tradi- who consume a, uh, a diverse media diet are less likely to to fall for conspiracy theory than a double PhD JD from Harvard that only gets their news from Fox. I may be referring to Bill Barr, but so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, you know one of one of the things, and I'm not going to rehash the 2016 election. Yeah. That that's a brutal thing to do. But yes. um, I think we saw you know broadly that there was a sort of strain of like. Hillary's just as bad as Trump, right? Yep. That was the sort of refrain. And in other arenas as well, do you, think the, do you think the left, like, broadly, or maybe the activist left in particular, has kind of learned some lessons of category collapse?
0: I mean, they certainly, in 2020, we did not have the... Tw- it, like, in 2016, anyone who... Like, it's always dangerous to even say those words, but <laughs> um, there was a definite strain of people who thought... It didn't matter who got elected or Hillary was just as bad or whatever else that was' some of those people ended up voting for Jill Stein. That was enough to cost her the election. Um, that did not happen in twenty twenty There was a lot of concern that would happen it It did not There are always going to be people who are going to argue both on the left and the right that they're both equally bad. but I think there were lessons learned from that actually the other side is really bad, and even if you have Some pretty fundamental disagreements with your nominee, with the Democratic nominee, whether it's Joe Biden or someone else, that uh, it's definitely better than the alternative. So I think that we did not repeat those. There's a lot of fears, like with, like, because Biden had done the least well with the basic, with the people most likely to, and I think to have that opinion. Because if the areas where there are huge disagreements with him on some issues, whether it's Medicare for All or the boldness of his climate change plan during the primaries or student debt cancellation or all, all sorts of those things that drew them to Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren that he did not do. And that we had, there was it's really no problem that way either publicly or at the polls in that case.
1: Um, in the, in the last kind of third of the book, you imagine a alternative media landscape where muscular messengers and you're not really afraid to use the word propaganda in some cases, somehow both replicate and counter the sort of right-wing machine that we have. Uh, I have some questions. Um, Does that – how do we do that without creating a million Denver fake paper sites? Um, And, you know, as Steve Bannon would put it, be complicit in flooding the zone with shit.
0: So I – like there are – like right now, as we sit here – there are thirteen twelve between twelve and thirteen hundred right wing fake local news sites that are pumping uh propaganda disinformation out there. they're almost- u- universally located in battleground states um and there are currently eight uh democrat- progressive owned local news sites, but those local news sites abide by they have they hire actual journalists they are transparent about their progressivism, uh, but they are operating under the traditional strictures of um, editing, fact-checking, et cetera. I think that's very important because we, disinformation is not going to work as a strategy for us. The Republican version is not going to work as a strategy for us. What I am really arguing for is to try to solve this problem that Democrats, these two problems that Democrats have. One is our message is getting drowned out. It is getting absolutely drowned out by right-wing noise. The right-wing is picking What we talk about in this country and the right wing understands this is Steve Bannon's vision is that the the voters who voted like there are two groups of voters here. They're the people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and Donald Trump in 2016, 2020. And then there are the voters, the four million people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008, who 2012, they did not vote in 2016. Those voters are. They are not swing voters or base voters. What they are are conflicted voters, and many cases they are culturally conservative or moderate on a whole host of issues. Right, that could be abortion. It could be um, LGBTQ plus rights. It could be immigration. Most notably, they have concerns about just this idea that the world is changing really quickly, and they may be getting left behind. But they are really liberal on economic issues. They do not promise, do not cut Social Security and Medicare. They do not repeal the Affordable Care Act. They would they support a, a larger minimum wage. They are infuriated by the idea that Amazon and Netflix pay zero dollars in federal taxes. And what Bannon realized was in 2012, Obama was able to make the argument about the side of the issue set to raise the salience of the issue set that made them vote Democrat. And so then Trump started talking about the wall to raise the issue set that made the vote Republican. And all the conversations we're having in this country right now are being decided by what Republicans think Push those cultural buttons with those issues. So we got to be able to push back on that. And the second thing is that one of the reasons why we're getting drowned out is Democrats, Republicans have Fox, they have all these Facebook entities, they have right-wing radio, they have these local news sites, they have all these ways to communicate their best, to pump their chosen narrative into the ecosystem either directly to their voters or just onto Facebook so that lots of people see it. The Democratic plan right now for how we get our message out is we we get in a room, maybe we get some consultants, we get a pollster, we figure out like the exact right, perfect thing to say. And it is, we know it's popular. These are popular things. And then we take that message and we hand it to the New York Times or CNN. And we're like, could you deliver this to us? Now, deliver this to our voters? Now, we recognize that you're probably going to take that little message. You're going to put your little sheen on it. You don't really care if the, how people receive the message. We also know that most of these voters don't really trust you because they're pretty skeptical of institutions. And so, like, let's just hope it works, right? And, like, that is not a good way to run a business. Like, you wouldn't, you know, it's like you wouldn't make all these pizzas and then uh, give them to your competitor and ask them to hand them out for you, right? Like, that's not really the, the right thing to do. Um, and so that's what I want to address. Like, that is the, what the, the structural problem Democrats have. We should be cautious and careful to ensure that we are not creating Fox like our version of Fox or disinformation. I think that that would not work because our the task for Democrats is to turn out, we can only win if we turn out people who are inherently skeptical of politics. I think that is there is. And if we like we can't we can't have a cynical strategy to do that. And I I feel like I have some context for how this can work, because I work, you know, I am a host of a podcast that has, you know, found an audience in this Trump period. It is part of a media company that has a bunch of other products. And I think we have found a way, I hope, to be fair but not balanced, right, to be honest but uh, not um, neutral. And I think that there is a chance, there is a place. And a lot of people doing, like it's not just us, there are a lot of people doing really interesting stuff, particularly digitally, that I think replicates
1: that. Where do you think the money will come from? I, I, I ask because, like, if you're the coax and you want to pump money into yes. media for twenty years, thirty years, you're doing it for a lot of reasons. But one really overriding reason is that you think that that will change the regulatory landscape yep. and, therefore, accrue to your bottom line. With progressive journalism sites or even things that are more clearly messaging sites. Yeah. They're not going to, they're not going to. Well, I mean, bad. that like, not
0: this, isn't that the paradox at the heart of all democratic progressive fundraising, which is we're going to go to you rich people and we're going to ask you for money. And one of the things we're going to do after you, your money helps us get into power is going to raise your taxes. Now there are a lot of people, very well-meaning people who are more than willing to pay higher taxes for better schools, climate change, uh, You know, getting assault weapons out the street, whatever that is. And I think that that's the similar context for progressive um, media, right? Is that people are going to have to invest, like, all, all, I mean, all support of Democratic politicians by really wealthy people is them agreeing to possibly have their taxes raised or their companies regulated. Uh, with you know tougher enforcement or all of the above, and so that's not a unique challenge here. It's also we also have a lot of people who give five ten dollars a month to Democratic candidates who can also support progressive media, right? Like I mean, you have you have pioneered a reader supported model in a lot of ways. That is a you know we people can do simple things that don't cost money like subscribe to progressive YouTube channels because the more people who subscribe to it the more people the YouTube algorithm will show the content to. Same thing with, you know, if you're still on Facebook, with progressive Facebook pages, if more people... The, the right gets this and their voters get it because it's an identity thing. Like, I follow Ben Shapiro, right? So I am going to follow him. We don't do enough of that. And so there is billionaire model, like there is the rich people model, and then there's also how do we turn, you know, how do we go to our our grassroots activist fundraising base also... Uh, be patrons of uh, sort of this new progressive megaphone?
1: You know, I, I feel like having been in a place of trying to raise money for progressive media for a yeah. very long time, um, you know, every few, every five, ten years, someone comes around with a pitch deck. I mean, I kind of remember the one for Air America or yeah. the, the one for, you know, various things along the way. And, you know, it was always a sort of Fox News of the left, but truth. Yeah. And I it's really hard to square. I mean, I would love for that to happen. Yeah. Please give us all money, yeah, all of us. Um, but Fox News works in part because it is not truth., yeah. and you know, I agree when i when I read good, good progressive media or when I listen to mm. you know Pod Save that there's like there's a way to kind of speak truthfully and from a point of view yep. um, but the money connection to that is still elusive i mean you guys have done really well but like it's you know no one's writing you checks for 500 million i yep. presume like let, let me know <laughs> um, <laughs> let me know yes um and so like again it sort of comes back to this funding model problem that kind of bedevils Progressive media most particularly,
0: I think. Yeah. The challenge we have is, and I write about this in the book, that every right-wing digital media company that has sprouted up over the last 10 years started with a right-wing billionaire giving them money to run a business at a loss because they viewed it as an investment of political outcome. And progressive billionaires tend to buy old media institutions, and try to fix them, which is like like truly a uh like a noble endeavor like it'd be great if some people bought instead of buying the Atlantic they bought like i don't know the Des Moines register or something and like got those papers up and running again, but still like it like we have a we have there is a business model problem with nearly all media, and so if people want to support it. There and I have I have been screaming at the rooftops about the need to invest in progressive media and progressive media and I define it like really largely like it can be like a a progress it could be something like Mother Jones like a a something that is media but is progressive right like it, it fits within your common conception of what media is it's here you have this magazine over here it's right leaning you have this one in the middle this magazine digital site et cetera, is. Uh, neutral, if you will, and this is liberal. Right, that is, we've had that model before. Right. Crooked Media is a media company. is a new media company that has a bunch of products, mostly podcasts, but also video stuff. Um, you know, has produced television shows. and things Got like coffee that. now. There's coffee. It's super weird. I, it's supposedly <laughs> great. I don't know. Um, and uh, we got to finish the old coffee before I'm allowed to put the new coffee in the in the <laughs> bin. So. Uh, The like all kinds of things like that. Um, but there's also just like content, right? Like there's a really, uh, more perfect union is a content outlet that was started by Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign manager, super smart guy, and they produce content that pushes populist economic, particularly pro labor union narratives. Like they're not trying it is and they're putting there. It's like videos, it's reporting, it's reports, and they're just like pumping in the ecosystem. They're putting a little money behind some of those things. And like that, like when I say progressive media, it's not just like, can we get Air America, Fox light, more, um, more great writing and reporting. Can we also just get more content, right? Like there is the right has a lot is like Prager University is a YouTube channel that pumps stuff in a lot of the disinformation that happened in Spanish language in the 2020 election was happening on YouTube. Completely oblivious to the non-Spanish speaking political reporters who cover presidential politics, um, but massively effectual. And there are. And as I've run around like yelling about this over the years, prior to 2020, it was almost impossible to get anyone who could write a big check to listen to the problem. So it was either fear of propaganda or it's we have all these other problems that are more urgent. But since 2020, there have been a lot more people willing to at least have our conversations about investing in this problem. Because I think the big lie and the success of January 6 or the dangers of Jan- the fact that they were able to convince enough people to assault the United States Capitol has, I think, bro- woken some people up about we're going to have to start fighting back.
1: I want to um, ask a few audience questions and I'm going to pick one that has shown up in a couple of these cards, mm. which is, who persuades Dianne Feinstein to retire? <laughs> <laughs>
0: You mean like retire like now,
1: right? Yes.
0: Um, I think if we all just tweeted her enough, <laughs> there's like a number where if she, we get, we tweeted her, we get to like five million tweets. She just like just like will Joe Manchin will change his mind on the filibuster? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's not great, as they say. Um, that yeah, she should she should retire. That's. I I don't think I'm the person because I've said this before and it has not worked, but uh, I wish that there was an effort to be more open about this because I think it's important.
1: Um, I have a few people who would really want to know which uh, shows that in some part reconstitute or movies reconstitute Obama-era politics that you like. Like, are there... um, did you watch the First Lady? I have a question here. Did you watch? You know, do you, uh, are those uh, or are those things hard to watch in a way because they're sort of this weird facsimile? That I have not watched.
0: For what are what are the other options other than First Lady? Is there another?
1: Oh, well, there's various like the, Madame uh, Secretary was one and just the other stuff? Yeah, yeah, various. Fair.
0: Um, uh, I have not watched First Lady. My wife very much, who worked for the First Lady uh, for a long time, very much wants to watch it. We have two small children, uh, and we're working our way through. We just finished The Staircase on HBO Max, so it's coming up soon. So uh, we would watch it. In general, uh, like fictional depictions of politics, I find relatively entertaining. Um, I watched a little Madam Secretary. Um, I The thing that I do not like and this is uh this is hard because my co-host john lovett was a writer for the show but i turned on the newsroom and this is before he was a writer he was a writer in like the second i don't know how many seasons were but not the first season but i turned on the newsroom when it first started and it's like aaron sorkin and it's about news and i'm interested in news i'll read that and the first episode was all about the oil spill the bp oil spill in the gulf and it's like, you know what I'm not doing? I'm not spending an hour on Sunday watching someone else rehash the worst days of my job. <laughs> so it's like so like those hit a little too close to home. Like I was on a plane once where they were showing the Michael Bay movie about Benghazi, uh, which is very factually inaccurate, I'm told. But I was like, that's not a thing I'm gonna I'm gonna right, watch. Yeah. Not gonna do it. yeah.
1: I mean also the newsroom was pretty terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they're, they're um, how much of a role do you believe that Russia or other foreign governments have in our disinformation space and now?
0: I think the, in 2016, obviously a gigantic one, um, lots of foreign actors. I think the, um, the social media companies were much better in the years afterwards at detecting foreign activity. The real role they played is they wrote the playbook that the right used in 2020 and particularly in how you use social media to in disinformation to target uh, black and latino voters that was what the russians really focused their energy on basically the you know in 2016 they did a lot of things where they used stock photos to get um, to create false accounts from that appeared to be from black people criticizing clinton or supporting trump to create this impression that there was this like lots of people doing it and then in 2020 the right just did that like in lots of ways like there was they created a false meme that you know first photoshopped a picture of the rapper's 50 cent and um ice cube uh wearing maga shirts um and saying that they had endorsed trump they had made a couple of like sure short-lived positive comments about trump but had not endorsed him they certainly had not worn said maga shirts and they did a ton around kamala harris and they very there was a very very popular Viral meme of uh, there was like this mosaic with that looked like it was you know maybe hundreds if not thousands of pictures of uh, of mostly black men who were people that Kamala Harris had uh, sent to jail, Uh, which it turns out the it was the same person. In all the photos, and that was a stock photo, um, so it was. But a lot of that, like that, that was straight out of the Russian playbook, was a an attempt to try to depress the vote among core democratic constituencies um, with disinformation.
1: I mean, I remember the first time, and I didn't really understand what it was, but the first time that I started noticing activity like this was during Ferguson. Yep. And you would chase down who someone claimed to be, and like if you went for, far enough into their you know, Twitter history, you're like, wait a minute, what's what's happening here? Yes. Um, of course, if you name that or talked mm-hmm. about your suspicions, you end up being the sort of source of, you know, the sort of focus of ridicule, yes. like of, you know, Russia, 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 yeah. or just, you know, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. why are you saying that these people aren't who they say? Um, yeah. And I'm wondering do you have any insights into how, because you kind of talk in mm. your book about various steps that we can take, like that kind of a thing, like how should we all be better uh, screening our social media intake?
0: Well, so there are two major guideposts. One is read the story, right? Like there is a lot, this is how, how a lot of disinformation is being passed along is it, is it, it like claims to take something from an article that the article does not actually say? Um, is approach everything with skepticism, everything, unless it is from someone you absolutely know because they are a reporter with the blue check mark. From an if you do not know who the person is, either from your life or because you, they are a media personality or, so, or someone who you have, who have a record of trust, be very skeptical that's accurate. Because a lot of people, it's not just there is the person who, and then this is the third thing, which is don't get baited into engaging with the content for a couple of reasons for this. One is lots of us mistakenly share misinformation because we share content that has out-of-context information. Right. There is uh, you see this all the time where, it, you know, it turns out, you know, it be like this happened a lot during the early parts of the Trump administration where it would be um, about that, like a heartbreaking story about someone being deported or potentially being deported. And then you would lots of people would share it. They'd be yelling about Trump and it would turn out actually that that person had been the deportation orders had been before Trump. Mm -hmm. or that there was more context to it or all these other things. People were constantly sharing and then being forced to like walk back, you know, particularly if they were a person who was, you know, had a platform and should know better. Um, The other thing I think this is the like the is. Whether it's disinformation or propaganda or anything else is when you engage like the most important thing to understand about all social media platforms is they measure engagement. The more the things that get more engagement are shown to more people. And it doesn't matter whether that is um, a comment, a positive comment, a negative comment, a thumbs up, a thumbs down, any of those things. It goes into the engagement meter in a show to more people. So people are constantly spreading disinformation. Like this is how bad Facebook is, but this is also true of Twitter or anyone else's. Let's say that, uh, let's just take someone like, let's say Tucker Carlson right, has a post that says the FBI is responsible for January 6th. If you reply to that and say that is not true, you are you are helping mm-hmm. spread that. Now that the original lie is going to get shown to more people and they're not going to see your one not true comment, uh, in the middle of a million other comments and so we are we are and the right that is an actual specific strategy employed by the right is to bait liberals into responding yep steve bannon did this famously with breitbart he would write these incredibly offensive headlines they were more offensive than anything ever written like birth control makes women ugly was a headline right uh the like an, it, he had some anti-semitic against about bill crystal and then everyone is like anti semite liar terrible and then she's just, just like Go into the bank every time, politically and financially, as it is getting spread all across Facebook. Trump did this pretty cleverly in um, the campaign when um, he was. uh, Now I can't remember. this Anyway, anyway, people do this all the time. Um, And like do not like there was a, a Neil Dash, who is this very thoughtful tech guy in New York, has talked a lot about this. But basically the way to think about it is we live in an attention economy. If attention equals money. So do not give someone attention if you wouldn't give them money. So if Ted Cruz says something and you're not, you're not a Ted Cruz donor, don't engage with his post.
1: So uh, I am at the risk of running slightly over time. I'm now supposed to kind of give you a, a final question. Okay. Some things up. Okay. Um, and regarding Biden and sort of the Democrats more broadly right now, um, you've been kind of hammering on this point that it's, it's not so much a comms problem. Yep. It's a reality yep. problem. Yep. Uh, so a, how c- is that important for people to understand? Or is it just further their cynicism that it's like, Oh, well the, all you're saying is it like, you know, it's even worse than I thought. Yeah. Um, okay. That's part one. What's Part one. And part two is, you know, what are, messages that you guys are crooked or otherwise fine can motivate people when things are so gloomy?
0: So on the first part, like there is this, we should be clear and honest with people that there is no messaging solution to historic inflation. Like there's nothing, there's nothing that Joe Biden can say or Nancy Pelosi can say or anyone else can say that's going to make people forget that gas prices and grocery prices are incredibly high and they can't do a bunch of things they would otherwise do, like go on a family vacation or buy something for their kids or any of those things because gas and grocery prices are so high. There is no message solution to that. However, it it may be the only thing we can control is what we say in this situation. Like there are a lot of things the administration is going to do to try to deal with inflation. Most of the problem is outside of their control because it's happening all over the world, everywhere but we can't control what we can say. And so in that sense, like there's not a solution to it, but it's like we focus on it because it's the one place where we may be able to do better than we were before. And so like, and I always think it's an important just to like give that caveat that the messaging isn't going to solve it, but we can always make it better, right? Both in terms of what we say and then how we get people to hear it. You know, there's two things that I think maybe the thing that has been the most um, motivating or helpful or illuminating to people is when we talk about these elections is to think about them this way is this is a very tough political environment. Historically presidents almost always lose in the situation. We have high inflation. We have a lingering pandemic uh, even on top of, uh, Normal inflation, we have where there's a land war in Europe, which is making grain prices and gas prices higher. So, this is tough times for sure. And everyone should be honest and realistic about it and not peddle um, like overly rosy scenarios. But it's a tractable problem. Like, think about it this way when it comes particularly to keeping or even expanding our Senate majority or winning the absolutely essential governor's races that w- could stop the next insurrection in its tracks by, w- by keeping the governorships of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and winning it in Georgia and Arizona. We don't have to convince a single person who voted for Donald Trump to vote for us. Not a single one. Joe Biden won all of those states. There is a pro, there's an anti-Trump, pro-democracy, pro-reality majority in those states and in the country. So all we have to do is go get the people who voted for Joe Biden and get them to vote again. Is that going to be easy? No, it's not going to be easy, but it is possible. Like it is absolutely possible. And particularly when it comes to the Senate, we, the Senate has in a situation like this one where you're running in states who've won before the, we have Parties have upended historical precedents, the historical precedent that you always lose in your election year. Obama got, in our 2010, talk about a really tough election, we lost 63 House seats, we kept the Senate. 2018, we, Democrats took the House, won 40 House seats, Republicans kept the Senate. Like it, that is a very, very possible thing to do, and we have to do it because the stakes are high. The, the threat that Donald Trump represented has metastasized across the entire Republican Party. January 6th, and that may have been, as this hearings have shown, the like a plot hatched by some of the dumbest people that ever walked the face of the planet, but they almost succeeded. But this time around, the entire Republican Party is on board. They're all engaged in it. And they're going to try to hold on to political power despite the fact that they represent a shrinking slice of the country with less popular policy, less popular politicians. And so the stakes are incredibly higher. And I know it can be exhausting to be told for the 17th consecutive election. This is the most important election in history. Uh, And I I feel guilty because I've sat on this stage in the 18, (laughs) 18, 18 and 20 to tell people the same thing. And now I'm here to tell you again, but the stakes are incredibly high and we can actually do it. We have the majority. We just have to get people to show up and that's, Like, that's a math equation that we can get done. Um, Not easy, but it's doable.
1: Well, I would just like to thank you, Dan, for joining us today. Dan's uh, new book, Battling the Big Lie, is available here. I think there will be signings out in the lobby. Um, And that will happen in a few minutes, but please line up in a single line when you kind of see the little table out there. Um, If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort to bring great public affairs events to life in person and to folks on YouTube, um, please visit visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. Um, Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Very exciting to be back here in person. And stay safe. Bye, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our
0: podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.